0: Greetings my friends and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Esther Adler. Esther is a yogi. She is an author. She is a doctor of PT. In fact, the name of her book is called Breaking the Chains to Freedom. I highly encourage each person listening to go out and pick up a copy on Amazon. It would be a fantastic read, especially if you've experienced any form of abuse in a past life. Now, today's episode is a continuation of last week's episode, so if you missed that, be sure and go back and pick it up so that you have the correct context for what we're about to jump into today. We had broken in the point of the conversation where we're talking about the mindset of the abused. And what actually happens to your self-perception in that particular scenario. So I'm gonna drop you back in into the conversation already in progress and pick up right there, guys. Enjoy.
1: With emotional abuse, because it's more subliminal, the person that is being abused actually loses the ability to think, to like really so it's if you think of like cults and you think about how they happen, a lot of times They're done listening to these long lectures, you know, and then over and over again, the same kind of message. And then they start to believe these messages. If you kind of think of like these cults, right? Right. And then why aren't they leaving these cults where all of a sudden now they're told to kill themselves? You know, I keep thinking of the one in Texas, Mm -hmm. I don't know, 10 years ago or something, 20 Uh, years ago. You're talking about Waco? Waco, right? Is it?
0: That was David Koresh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's just like, how did these people kill themselves, right? You know, and it's
0: yeah. I don't think I don't think that was a I don't think that was a kill yourself cult. I think the the Jonestown thing was a kill yourself cult. That's the one where like, they drank all the Kool Aid, right?
1: Yeah, that's I'm thinking of the one where they did these horrible things to them themselves, and it's like, how could someone do yeah, that, right?
0: It's insane, yeah.
1: But, but I actually understand that because, like, the same thing happens to abused women, more emotionally abused women. You literally lose the ability to actually reflect and think and make judgments. And so I would sit there and listen to my husband and I would not be able to argue. Mm. I I couldn't, I I would not be able to defend myself. I wouldn't be able to have a normal conversation. I would just sit there like this, you know, and just be like, I forget, not, nobody can see me, but my eyes are.
0: (laughs) Head down, eyes closed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Staring at my feet, yeah, kind of Slump.
1: thing. You know, I'd be the little right. child. I would just be this victim, mm-hmm. and, um, that, that, and then I would actually start to believe him mm-hmm. after a while. I'd be like, maybe he's right. Like, it's just so crazy how my mind just, um, play tricks on me.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 one of those laws of of. I guess you could say mentality where we do believe anything that we've heard or repeat to ourselves over and over again. I can relate. I, uh, I split with a girlfriend once and we held assets together and then she sued me and I got three lawsuits delivered to me on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and, uh, no. and I was reading the complaints, right. And civil suit, you can, I mean, you can sue anyone for anything is civil, right. But, uh, the only way you lose is you don't defend yourself. So, I basically kept reading through these complaints and reading through these complaints and reading through these complaints. And I was looking at the allegations and I'm like, this, this is not even close to true. But by the time I had read through like the third or fourth time, I'm like, well, maybe that is what happened. Maybe I am this horrible individual. Maybe I, you know, I was started to question myself. And yeah. it was in those moments, like that was probably one of the lowest points in my life. I could understand why someone would put a gun in their mouth at that point, you know, because honestly, I had genuinely lost my perspective on what actually happened in those scenarios
1: it's really crazy and um, memory is such a crazy thing i i am fascinated by the brain you know i uh i think because we still know so little about it maybe it's a combination of what happened to my father and what happened to my mother Mm -hmm. you know and um just the brain is just so complex and memory in particular they have just discovered is actually malleable, like malleable. And I'm like, how could memory be malleable? Like, it's something that happened, but it actually is. And and I, I can't remember. I I listened to a million nerdy podcasts, and one of, them, <laughs> <laughs> one of them is like a neurology podcast about brain, you know, brain stuff. And and mm-hmm. so they had this neurologist on that was explaining why it's malleable, and it's just like. Oh, my goodness, that's so crazy. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, they've done these studies where um, you they can actually literally take the cells in your hippocampus. That's where most of your memory is is made or stored and then physically change them. They've actually done this, essentially changing your memory. Like, that is so crazy. Do you remember what <laughs> method
0: they used to, ch- to change the hippocampus? I don't. (laughs) Is it just, was it something like repetition?
1: Um, No, it's, they physically manipulated the the, the cell itself.
0: Oh, I see. I see.
1: So they found the cells and they they did something to the cells Mm. because memory is stored. And so they're stored in cells. Everything about us is essentially made up of cells. So the hippocampus has just a gazillion memory cells. So if you can actually, so it's a physical thing it's so crazy so you can actually change a physical thing and so it kind of goes again along with you know this whole spiritual idea of the present moment right Mm -hmm. um where the only truth is is the now because what happened in the past is not now it already it happened and the future hasn't happened yet and so the present moment is now so The second ago when I was talking about the hippocampus isn't true anymore. It's just (laughs) like wow, so crazy.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of power in that, though. It's um, you know, it's funny to think about, and it's cool to see these experiments now that we have a lot of uh, you know a lot of technology coming online that can help us look at the brain and the cells and stuff like that. But. When you do look at those memories, right, and and you touched on this earlier when you were talking about your relationship with your with your father, for example, when you look back, you understand it, right? You have those memories, but now you're able to shade them differently. You can experience them differently in the now just by giving yourself a different perspective or a different story around what actually took place and then exactly. be, be a different person in that moment.
1: Absolutely. And then it's kind of like what you were saying. It's like, then you start to even doubt your own memories, right? I mean, I doubt many of my memories all the time. There was a fascinating podcast I listened to. Let me see if I can remember if this was, I think it was a This American Life podcast. Okay. And um, they were talking about this lady who uh, went, who grew up with her dad, but um, her dad died, was very, very, um, very close to her dad. Dad died. And then she was trying to like, see if she can maybe build a relationship with her mother, knowing there was a very good reason why she didn't live with her mother. And so it turned out that her mother was sexually abusive to her when she was a little kid. And that's essentially why um, her dad got full custody. But then the question was, is this memory real? Mm -hmm. Is that actually what happened? So she went to the psychologist who was involved in um, the court, case behind it where he actually videoed her when she was a little girl and to make a long story short um she um confirmed even before he put the tapes on what her mother did to her she started to remember and then this other psychologist who studies neuro- the like the, the brain who's like a a neuropsychologist um who basically has proved that you can't trust people's memories And many times this is in criminal court cases where she came into the picture and said, you can't trust this girl's memory even then. And she essentially did this study that essentially confirmed it so much so that now this girl who at first started to remember what her mother did at the end of the day, she's like, you know what? I really have no clue if my mother is good if my mother is bad, if these stories are made up in my head. And she goes, wow, I am so confused now. Like, so to this day, her she doesn't know if her mother is a good person or the bad person. <laughs> and that is just so crazy. So it's like, you, can you even trust your own, you know, memories? And the question is, maybe you can't. And then you have to ask yourself, well, how important is it? And then I go back to what I had said before is, well, maybe it's really just about being present. Maybe our memories aren't that valuable. And then we hold so many grudges and so much pain based on these memories that maybe not, aren't even real. In fact, how many times do we even remember why we're angry? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, obviously part of your training is, um, you know, as you, as I mentioned at the top of the show is, you know, mindfulness and we're kind of jumping into that rabbit hole. But um, you know, in looking at your experience and now that we have a little context around some of the things that you um, you know, bring with you in terms of memory, you know, what what is it around the mind and mindfulness that you can use as tools to start changing the way that you see that and actually using it as a tool that you can use for your own agency in the present?
1: That's a great question. And there are many, many ways to do it. You know, the go-to that a lot of people like is meditation and meditation is, there are so many forms of meditation i tell people like people are like oh i can't meditate i'm way too type a and i'm like well obviously you have no idea how type a I, am. <laughs> I meditate every day you can do
0: it people you can box breathe for four minutes come on
1: yeah there you go i say first it doesn't have to be a set time there's actually a relatively recent study that shows that those that meditate um, so so we essentially start getting dumb from age twenty five and on. <laughs>
0: Good to know. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
1: we essentially the gray matter starts to shift in our brain unless we do something about it, right? right? So there are many ways to do things about it. Um, one is maybe constantly working your brain, like going to PT school when you're older and <laughs> Um, other ways is meditate. And this study shows that just meditating a few minutes a day of people that are in their fifties and sixties have the same gray matter space, um, as the 20 year olds. Mm -hmm. So they're great. They're they're They become essentially just as smart as they were when they were younger, just by meditating. Mm -hmm. And it showed that you don't have to meditate 20, 30 minutes, even doing five minutes a day. does a ton of good. But then there are other things you can do, like, for example, the uh, the writing that I did was one of the most healing things I've ever done in my life. And I've done this for other things. I did this for a money mindset thing where I started to realize how I think of money in a very unhealthy way based on some ideas that I had in the past that were unhelpful. And it was through this writing journey that I did, that I started to realize this, where then I was able to start to shift and make new ideas of how I felt about money. And it was, again, so, so powerful. And I I highly recommend that journaling. Um, I climbed um, Mount Rainier a couple of years ago. And um, uh, at uh, Camp Muir, which is, I think it's at 10,000 feet, it's the greatest place. If you have no interest in in uh, climbing or hiking, but you happen to find yourself um, at uh, Mount Rainier National Park, just go to Camp Muir. <laughs> it's such a great place. There's um, a little um, pee bathroom and a little poo bathroom. I swear to God, it's like the craziest thing. <laughs> you can't do it in the same place. You know? <laughs> and it's just like, they have um, uh, these little cabins that you can sleep in. Um, it's just it's such a great place and then you look up and you see the glacier, and then you look down 5,000 feet and you just see the rest of the park and it's it's such a magical place. Just just camp here So anyway, my whole point is that we had just done 5,000 feet of climbing I'm exhausted and I see this guy takes out his journal and he starts writing and, you know, I, I let him do his writing. And then later on, I'm, I'm sitting on the rock next to him. And he's like, yeah, I journal every single day. And it's like my meditation. It's it's my way of kind of, you know, bringing everything together. And I said, that is an absolutely beautiful practice. I love that, you know, and I, I don't journal every day, but I kind of want to, like now that I'm talking about it, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should journal a few minutes after my meditation. That's you like know? a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really, really powerful. But if there's something specific that you're having a hard time letting go, and that's where I still do it, that if I'm struggling with something, then I do journal and I find it very helpful. You now, know,
0: What is it about the meditation piece that uh, allows our brains to sort of, you know, maintain their, I guess, what's the right word? I'm not really sure. Um, youthful, youthful vigor. I'll use that as a phrase. Um, did, did the study that you mentioned earlier, did they go into that at all or no?
1: they didn't go into the whole fizzy physiological aspect of how that happens but we do know that you know especially now we live in such a busy environment and um we only use like i don't know what is it 8% of our brain something really minute um and a large part of it is cuz we're 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 not focused we're so busy being all over the place thinking all over the place even if I mean, how many people have a hard time going to sleep, right? They have this insomnia. Yeah. And it's because our brain, we can't quiet our brain enough. You know, and I still have moments where where I have that, you know, in the heart of PT school, I, I, for the first time I was actually ever in my life, I was finding a hard time falling asleep sometimes. And then I realized, wow, one, I wasn't meditating as often because I was waking up early, running to school, getting home later, studying. So I kind of got out of my own routine of stuff that I knew would help me. Ooh, you know? <laughs> and so it's okay. We have moments like that. And because I went through that, I realized, oh, wow, there's a reason why this stuff actually works, right? You know. And then I wasn't falling asleep at night. Because my brain didn't have enough time to slow down, focus, and be in the present moment. So when you're in the present moment, one, you're more clear, you're able to do more, you're able to accomplish more. You're also not busy, you know, with the negative emotions and emotions aren't bad. And it's okay if you're feeling that in that present moment, fully feel it and then move on, which is great. Um, But other than that, then you can kind of go on and really start to create your life. Another thing that meditation does is then you start to be clear on, well, what is it that I want to create in my life? And so then you're able to then have not just the why, but the how. And then the next thing is it kind of calms everything down. And you're really able to live life fully. I did this five-day meditation many years ago, and I actually want to experience it again. Maybe I'll create it. I don't know. And it's based on a dyad meditation. And this is a meditation I love to teach. It's a meditation that you do with another human being um, where one gives an instruction and then that person that just gave the instruction becomes the listener and if you're given the instruction you essentially it sounds like someone asked you a question but it's not it's really i'm giving you an instruction and so Mm -hmm. the instruction we were working with during that five days is tell me who you are and so it's not who are you that's a question it's tell me who you are so i'm giving you the instruction and then you would go and share who you are in that moment. Not, Mm. oh, I had a fight with my wife the other day and it's just, I can't get through it and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of go into your whole story. Um,
0: So you're not allowed to go forward or backward. You have to stay right there.
1: You stay right there. The first day, many of us did go forward and backwards um, and and our um, facilitator helped a little bit with that. Because the way he described it is it's kind of like unlayering an onion. And so we're right now at on the outside of the onion. And so in the beginning, you are kind of sharing more story stuff. But then uh, halfway through the first day, um, and so each meditation is about 40 minutes. And then you stop. And we usually then do a quiet walking meditation where you're just outside walking. And then we come back for session two And that sort of thing and so by the time you're at session three or four of these dyads um, you are have now on layered more of the onion and so then you are more present by the time day four came along I was never more present in my life it was just the most unbelievable experience so much so that I was energized at 4 in the morning when we started I also fell asleep at like 830 at night when we were done you know, immediately. Um, I wasn't hungry. I I I can't even describe it was an absolutely magical experience. Um, can we live in that environment, you know, throughout our entire life, day by day? I'd say maybe if we were the Dalai Lama, <laughs> but most of us are, you know, have a normal regular life and it we're not expected to live at in that. on that level. But what I did learn is the power of meditation. And And This was just just one form. There are many forms of meditation that can do that.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what was the shift uh, in your mind between the day one and the day four, where you're experiencing this sort of bliss? Um, Was it just that you were able to let go of worrying about the future or or the past and, and be there? Or was it something more to it?
1: So for me, so I had become a type one diabetic at 29. And I think I went to this particular meditation maybe one year later, maybe when I was 30. Not even, I don't even know if it was a year into the me being diagnosed. And I was still really grappling and and, and not fully accepting the fact that I will be a type one the rest of my life and that sort of thing. And I was angry. I was going through the stages of grief. <laughs> which I talk about in my book. Um, and um, I so it was during one of the dyads where I literally started screaming. And one of the reasons that got me to, to feel really angry with a whole type one at that moment was I still to this day eat more paleo-based, which uh, controls my sugar beautifully. Um, this was a wonderful meditation experience but it was a completely vegetarian diet which was very high carb um so vegetarian diet can work if you're a paleo but it's a little harder um and you need specific foods in order to do that and they didn't have those foods <laughs> so It was just like every kind of carb you can think of and so I found myself kind of starving or my sugar going through the roof because I had to guess how much insulin to give because I don't eat that way and So I was just angry and frustrated. And so I kind of was in the past, being upset at the food I was eating and in the future, worried about dinner. And then I was angry at the fact that I was a type one and I had this kind of scream sort of thing going on. And that was somewhat typical of this process where different people had moments where they were crying or screaming or whatever. So I was kind of crying, a little bit of yelling. And my uh, the facilitator comes up to me and he says, "Tell me who's observing you. Who's that? Who is that that's observing you?" And I'm thinking and I'm like looking and I'm like me, like it's it's the one who never never changes, right? And he, you know, continued to kind of coach me. Well, who is that? Who is that? You know, uh, who? Tell me who you are, right? And, and so he kind of guided me. And it was at, like, at that moment where I was like, oh, this is really who I am. I am not my disease. I am not my past. I am not the dinner I'm going to eat. <laughs> and I was like, wow, we are none of that. We are so, so beyond that. And I got to actually experience that, not just understand it. It was like at a different level. And I was like, wow. And I, I was like, I need to experience this as often as I possibly can to remind ourselves, because as human beings, how quickly we forget.
0: hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, I think, is by Disraeli. And he says, you know, man crucifies himself between two thieves, you know, regret for the past or fear of the future something along that line.
1: And Absolutely. I couldn't
0: help but think of that as you're telling your story, because it all comes down to those emotions that you're generating based on the story that you're telling yourself about a thing you haven't even experienced, like dinner. <laughs> dinner could have been amazing, but because previous dinners like this one have been shit, I'm going to go ahead and create anxiety around this upcoming dinner, you know? And it's like, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, that's how we operate, right? And I know. And I know that... Yeah. I mean, I know like a lot of times when I'm in that space that you're describing, it's because I'm generating some wacky emotion around something. And, um, I know that one of your things is, you know, emotions can be fantastic, right. In the right context, they're not Mm -hmm. bad. So I'm wondering if you could speak to your view on emotions and how they can serve you.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I, um, I had taken a workshop and then I, I created aspects of that workshop because I saw the power of using what we would term negative emotions in a beautiful, beautiful way. And in this workshop, what I learned and then started to teach was through movement and fully expressing yourself in different kinds of emotions through this movement of your body, you can fully feel it and then release it. And so one of the things she had us do is actually throw a tantrum. <laughs> we were, were on the floor, like 400 grown adults flailing our legs and our <laughs> hands and our arms on our backs and on our stomachs and screaming 400 people. And my dog is pawing me. She's like, mommy, you're not, t- you're not um, listening to me. I'm talking about emotions, Bella.
0: So jealous right now. <laughs>
1: and at the end of that I not only did I feel this unbelievable release and relief I saw like these grown men crying from relief and they were like that was the first time that I fully felt angry in a safe wonderful way and that kind of brought me back to when I was uh, going through my divorce and I was it was a lot of um, horribleness that I went through with that, and I'll just leave it that if you if you guys want to know a little more about it, just listen, read my book. <laughs> but one of one of the um, one of the things I learned to do is go into the forest in my car, you know, like find like a quiet area where nobody's hiking, preferably. <laughs> Stay in your car because this way it'll block the noise and scream as loud as you possibly can. You know, let out those emotions, you know, or if you or if you need to, you, you know, on your bed, take a pillow and hit it really, really, really hard. You know, um, my friend told me about the screaming box where you take a tissue box that's empty, you know, and you take like paper towel, um, like what, when the thing is uh, done with paper towels the and then you the roll and then you you put a bunch of like paper towels in there and mm-hmm. And then you put it in the tissue box, like the small tissue box, right? And then you scream into that paper towel <laughs> roller. That's great. So now you're not going to scare your neighbors.
0: <laughs> right, right. It's like a bong for screaming or something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> crazy. So having these emotions is wonderful because then you release it out of your body, but you're giving yourself permission to fully feel it. Mm-hmm. We have the emotions for a reason. We're supposed to feel, but... The problem is we suppress the emotions and then we don't fully feel it and then we can't release it. And then that's where, you know, things like cancer pop up and and that sort of thing and just not really being happy. People are walking around miserable and most of the time they don't even know why they're miserable. Maybe it's because they never fully felt angry. And maybe they never really cried when someone died, let's say. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe they never fully felt happy. You have to see me in the movies. It can be if comedy, but if there's one scene that's sad, I will be bawling.
0: <laughs> I am the same way. I admit it.
1: <laughs> but I think that's great because that means that we're fully feeling these emotions. It's not a bad thing. I think most of us are scared. But I think it's a, a sign of power, not a sign of weakness.
0: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I love that idea of just you know separating yourself from people who are going to think you're crazy or think you need help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just you know investing in yourself and and really you know letting things go. If, it seems to me that a lot of our sort of emotional distress just comes from not allowing things to be felt completely. And then I know that you had mentioned this a couple of times, but then also you brought up the aspect of how this can cause or how it can manifest itself physically as in some form of negativity, like a disease or this, that, the other thing. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, because I know a lot of people think that's a little bit woo-woo.
1: Well, I'll tell you how I believe, um, or one of the reasons why I think I got diagnosed with diabetes. First of all, it doesn't run in my family. There's nobody that has type 1 or type 2 on either side of my family. Um, I got diagnosed two years before... um, I ended up getting divorced It was maybe less than a year um, before I filed for divorce. So it was coming up. Um, There is, um, I'm totally forget you can heal your life. Um, uh, I'm totally blanking out famous, famous author. One of the first books I read Louise Hay. Mm. So there's a book called her first book is you can heal your life. And she claims that she has healed herself from cancer, Um, through changing her whole mindset and everything. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter. But when you read the book, a lot of it kind of makes sense. But what's more important is I turn to the back of her book. And in the back of the book, she lists every ailment, disease, pain, whatever, you name it, and links it to an emotional aspect of what is going on for you. Under diabetes, it says... Lack, lack of sweetness in your life and longing for what might have been. And when I read that, boy, did my jaw drop because that was exactly me. That lack was of exactly. Sweetness in me. your life.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, where did how did she arrive at this list, uh, or does she explain that in her book?
1: She might explain that. I, I'm I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, the whole book is kind of explaining how. Emotions, uh, manifest to physical elements and, or ailments in, in your body. And, um, when she realized that how she started to shift and she did a lot of, um, you know, uh, mindfulness kind of stuff and, um, you know, positive, positive, uh, you know, uh, affirmations and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I'm sure she did other things as well to help her with her cancer, but I'm sure that played a huge role as well. Whereas, you know, other people who let's say just do chemo and still have a negative mindset maybe won't fear as well. Right. Right. Um, and so, so you would ask, so, so that was one way where I was just kind of shocked whether you say, okay, Esther, that doesn't prove anything. It doesn't, it's true. It totally doesn't. But for me, that was, that was I couldn't believe how pertinent that was. Um, And then I had a few other um, moments where I really felt the emotion physically in my body. The other moment was, I'll never forget, I had a lower back pain that just wouldn't go away. Now, I never have lower back pain, (laughs) like ever. And um, I would regularly go to chiropractors, um, you know, just because... I knew it was like something that I, or at least I thought it was something I should do. Um, or if I had any sort of twinge, I would go and then I would always feel better. Right. So I went to the chiropractor, didn't do a thing, nothing, it didn't help. Um, this is when I was still, I was a full-time dancer. So um, I, there's a lot, there's a lot that we can talk about with me, but that's like a whole other story. Um, I danced many, many, many years, wanted to be on Broadway. Um, and so chiropractor didn't help. And this is um, right when I was in the midst of, like, the separation, divorce. We were still living in the same house, but, you know, uh, figuring out how to separate and that sort of thing. And I look in the mirror. I'm in the bathroom. I'm just staring at myself in the mirror. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm really angry at my husband. I'm like, I'm like, anger was was an emotion I never wanted to really experience. I was always scared of that emotion with my father and with my husband. I just... It was an emotion I tried to avoid in myself. And then I realized I was feeling it. I wasn't allowing myself to feel it. as soon, I swear to God, as soon as I realized that, pain in my back was gone. It just disappeared. And I was like, oh my God. Like that was anger. And I let go of the anger and it was gone. And so those are kind of like my two life stories of how um, by holding on to emotion, what it can do to us. Um, just examples. But then I also know what happens when you fully let go of emotions, what it does, and how much better you feel, and how it gives you permission to kind of fully experience that moment. Whereas where you're kind of holding things in, uh, life actually completely runs by you, you don't even know what's going on. So I would rather really live life, whether it's really living anger in for five minutes, and then being able to be content, you know, or laughing my heart out and scaring my neighbor because he hasn't heard anyone laugh like that, (laughs) you know, but really doing it, you know, I would much rather live that way. Yeah,
0: definitely. I think uh, off mic, before we started recording, you and I were having a little bit of a pre-interview and you were telling me a little bit about the roller coaster ride, the ups and downs. And I think so many people think that life should be a flat line, you know, like you're supposed to be Mm -hmm. at equilibrium at all times. Speak to that a little bit. What's your opinion on that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, and I've met people that, you know, live a very flat line, right? Because they're so scared to have those ups and downs. But what happens is that when you don't allow yourself to have those downs, those like falling down, like, you know, a hill, or I can't think of a good example, um, you can't get back up to that top mountain, right? You know, Um, and so you have to be able to have those dips in life in order to like ride up. You know, you can also think of it the other way. If you're not climbing and really struggling to get to the top, you're not going to get to the summit and see the spectacular, you know, views from the top or better yet, if you're from Alaska, you're not going to hand glide down the mountain. Cause that's what they do there. It's like so <laughs> cool. I think I'm going to have to learn how to hand glide. Cause that's just the coolest way to go down a mountain. It's you just make like it sound okay,
0: cool for sure
1: oh my god so amazing but you got to get to the top and there's some struggling involved right absolutely so many people are just like eh eh, this is comfortable i'm good it's kind of like that person and and if you're this person please don't hate me but like you're on the treadmill but you're like still chatting on facebook while you're on the treadmill you know (laughs) are you actually working out like there's no way you're like when i'm working out like, my boyfriend is so scared. He's like, Esther, like, our neighbors are going to call the ambulance. Like, can you please not be yelling like that, you know? <laughs> like, I can't have a conversation when I'm working out, right? Because right? right. I am fully working out. I'm giving it my all. I am, like, just doing what needs to get done. And um, there's no way I can have a conversation. Um, so that, I think that when you, when you live that way, and, and the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So the way I work out is the way I study for a test or for school is the way I will create a business is the way I give a talk. You know, I 300 percent in um, other people are scared. And so and I was that person. I was that little, timid, emotionally abused wife who just listened to her husband for two hours because I was really scared to stand up for myself and it was only when I started to realize wait a second this is not how I meant to live and I started to slow it was a slow process but it was through a bunch of exercises and a bunch of me realizing how powerful I really am and this is how I truly want to live that I decided to make it unconditional. That I will make sure that everything I do is that way, not just mediocrely, because I don't want to live a mediocre life. And I don't think any of us should, but many of us are scared because we're scared of going down and hurting ourselves or the scrapes we're going to end up climbing. God, you don't want to see my arms, but, you know, <laughs>
0: <That's so laughs> it's true.
1: totally worth it because that mountain was really awesome when I got to the top. <laughs> you
0: mentioned, you mentioned struggle, and this is one of my favorite words. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ray Dalio or his book Principles, but inside that book, he talks at great length about this concept of struggle and how if you're, how life is a struggle to borrow the Buddhist principle but that we should struggle well, right? That we mm-hmm. should struggle well. And I love this concept because there, it's it's sort of, you know, oxymoronic in a way. But I'm wondering if you could maybe crack the door a little bit to that piece where you finally got the strength and the nerve to say, you know, see you guy, I'm out of here. And, you know, what was it that sort of created the impetus for you to, to start seeing yourself in a more powerful light, in a different light, and then create all the things that you've created since?
1: that's a really good question. I don't know if it was one particular thing. I think it was a combination of things. So I had mentioned that I was a dancer. Um, I started dancing when I was really little, but then my mother got sick. So then I stopped dancing. And in the religious world, it's kind of not seen as something you want to do as a career. So then when I left the religion, I realized, oh, no, no, this is what I really want to do. But I was an adult at that point. But I started to think, wait a second, maybe it's still not too late for me. And so I went full in and then I realized, wow. And I think it was really through dance where I realized that I can't believe that it's so late in in life. I still managed to be at a, on a professional level. Like I became that good that yeah. I'm now auditioning for Broadway shows and modern dance companies and whatnot, where most people would never even dream that they can get that good starting in their late teens, early twenties. Like it's just not possible.
0: Well, that's such an amazing dichotomy though. I mean, you go from just admittingly saying, Hey, you know what? I had terrible self-esteem to auditioning for some of the greatest, you know, uh, companies I'm assuming in your area. So, you know, how do you reconcile those two things?
1: Well, and, and I think that, It was funny because I would audition knowing I was great, but I never really made it in in the big companies. I made it in small, small, small companies. And I think part of it because I was still going home to an abusive husband. Mm -hmm. So there was still part of me that didn't fully want to believe how great I really was. But it was, again, through dance where I started to see potential in me. And I then started uh, acting. So I went to acting classes where, again... I it became it was an effortless thing for me I realized that I was really really good at it and acting did more than just make me realize what I'm capable of it was actually almost like free psychology sessions where <laughs> I had the ability to fully feel whatever it is my scene dictated right
0: mm-hmm.
1: um completely and you know my teacher said I have a very full pantry <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm i a really good actress, um, you know, because of my past, mm-hmm. you know, I can grasp things that most people can't get right because they have to use fake stories to get to that. I just use some of my real life things and I was able to get to that place in seconds, you know, and all of a sudden people saw emotions that they never thought they would see re- <laughs> in real life, you know, <clears throat> Um And so I was very good on stage. I was really, really good on stage. Um, So much so I had directors walk me to my car, you know, and talk to me for like an hour. And I was like, oh, I totally would get this. And then I didn't get it. And I'd be like, what's going on? (laughs) You know, performing arts is a tough world. Um,
0: It's interesting, though, that you chose dance and acting. I mean, two professions that require you to put yourself out there in front of people. And again, describe yourself with low self-esteem there's there's something in there
1: yeah i I, because i i think i i again was starting to see that you know how amazing i really was and i wanted the world to see me but then in my real life i mean maybe this is a bad example but i i from what i heard of michael jackson he had that where he was super shy he was abused as a kid you know, but he was such an amazing performer, right? now I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jackson, but <laughs> I think in terms of being a performer, it's not that unusual. Um, like if you talk to me back then when I was still living with my husband, I think I would still, I was still very shy. And you would have, you would have seen me as someone who had very little self-esteem. But then if you saw me dance, you'd be like, oh my God, whoa, <laughs> like, that's like a different person, you know? Yeah. So,
0: so it's like these things think, gave you permission in a way.
1: Yeah. So I think that was uh the instigator. And then that from there, I got introduced to, um, you know, things like Tony Robbins and T. Harbecker's peak potential, which is essentially a similar kind of idea to Tony Robbins courses and that sort of thing. And, Um, it was through that. And then I got more introduced to other, you know, um, spiritual, um, teachers like Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer and, um, conversations with God. And I literally read every single book that was out there at the time. And through that, and through developing friendships of people that would support me, I finally got the guts to leave him and realize, wait, I, I, I'm, I'm enough. I'm good enough. And I could create a life that I want, and not have to, you know, believe that I'm as terrible as this man keeps telling me I am. And again, it was not overnight. um, But I slowly found my my own power. Um, And it really was about breaking those chains. But then, you know, the the subtitle of my book is finding the power within me that took more time, and honestly, sometimes I still struggle with it. Sometimes I still have to remind myself, wait a second. No, I am that good, you know? And then I give myself permission to have a moment where, okay, Esther, it's okay. Absolutely. We all have that. We yeah. all have
0: that for sure. For sure. That's amazing. So at this point in your uh, in your story where you end up, um, you know, exiting this, this poor relationship, did you get any backlash from, say, the auntie that set you up or the religious community that sort of, supported this this whole matchmaking thing
1: yeah so and i don't really touch too much on this in my book because when i published my book i was going through the harshest moments of this my husband essentially did the ultimate abuse to not just me but my four children he alienated my four kids from me so we technically share the kids Uh, they have now all they're all grown now um but he turned them against me meaning that when it was my week to have them they didn't want to come to my house and they just wanted to stay with him so he just convinced them to not want to have anything to do with me and um that was incredibly hard and he managed to get my family to help my kids turn against me because they would tell them and the community as well so the rabbis got involved and everything so essentially he 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 uh, use the religion um, to say that I'm, you know, a bad influence on my children and they should have nothing to do with me. And, um, I lost my four kids essentially. Mm. Two youngest and I were, we're very close. They don't live with me, but they're, we're very, very close. Um, so, um, that was, uh, but my aunt has actually come around and she's started to talk to me again and wants to have a relationship with me and everything. Um, but in, for the first, I would say at least five, six years, um, I was not this cool girl you see right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I, I, wrote this book on how to help people, but I was struggling. I wasn't ready to go out there and talk because, um, I was dealing with alienation and I did not know how to deal with that.
0: No. Understood. Understood. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it sounds like the book was the cathartic piece and then there was still some work to do and, uh, implementing yeah. You know, implementing some of the tools that you had learned.
1: Everything in the book is true, but it was hard for me to practice a lot of it, just because the the alienation was, like I said, it really was the ultimate abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, um, you know, m- my ex husband is incredibly, um, what's the word? He's he's very good at manipulating people and um, circumstances. So um, he, uh, he was one of the people downtown during 9-11. He didn't get hurt or anything. And it was not fun for anyone that was down there, but he has since never worked. And he has been able to convince the government to give him money. He's convinced my aunt to give him money. Um, he, he essentially is really good at getting other people to kind of pay him stuff but he still works. He just kind of works under the table. So he works for the school and they pay him cash and (laughs) he works for people's homes and they give him cash. And I was just like, wow.
0: He's playing the game at at a high level. It sounds like for sure.
1: Yeah. He's really, he's really good at what he does. Let's just say
0: that. Right. So, I mean, given that, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people in your shoes would just you know go into the space of victimhood right like all this stuff has kind of happened to me and i know part of uh, your book you talk about uh, victimhood versus being a warrior and i wonder if you could speak to that and draw the distinction and how you define it
1: yeah so victimhood is the way i look at it is it's about that things happen to me and i have no control over that um and it's a poor me like these things happen, right? My dad, I didn't ask my dad to, to abuse me and poor me. But what I realized that what that does is you completely take the power away from you. And yeah, you might have reasons for being upset, but it's not at all gonna allow you to move on and move forward. Whereas the warrior aspect, things happens to warriors all the time, right? You know, People are always trying to kill them and hurt them and hit them. And what do they say? Okay, I understand that this happened to me, but now I need to move forward. I, I have a job I got to do, and I'm going to make sure I get that done. And I realize that I definitely want to live more of the warrior attitude, you know, warrior, maybe a little bit of wizardry involved in there or, nice. you know, um, just to essentially realize we have complete control as well as having the idea of letting go. You know Wayne Dyer used to say letting let go and let God and you know there's an element of both diabetes did happen to me Did my mindset have something to do with it? Probably. Maybe not completely. Maybe it would have just happened to me anyway So with that I realized I have to completely let go. Did my children not want to leave uh, live with me at the end? Yeah Did I have an aspect to that? Yeah, I got divorced, you know that happens, right? But how am I going to now live with that? I am going to live my life so fully that my children cannot help but be proud of me, which they are. My kids um, came to my graduation. My, my youngest daughter, she said, like, everyone in my school knows that you graduated from Columbia. Like, <laughs> I'm the first person in my family not only graduate from college, to not only graduate from a higher level degree, right, a graduate degree. then to go to Columbia University, like an Ivy League school. So my kids are incredibly proud of me. And it's because I I did not apologize for having a full life. Mm. And again, that's something I learned from Wayne Dyer. He says, you cannot be sad enough to help that person who's suffering. That's not going to help that person. You have to live fully, happily, like really make your life so complete. That's what's going to help other people. And I realized by me feeling sorry for myself for whatever it is I feel I have a reason to and I, yeah I have I have a bunch of reasons right my my dad, my husband, my kids, diabetes. I'm sure I can come up with some more cool stuff right <laughs> <laughs> But I realize that none of those are going to allow me to live my life fully. I'd much rather live my life fully and then therefore be able to have a better impact on, for example, my children, have a better impact on my own health and my own diabetes, have a better impact on other people that might be able to learn from me because of how I'm living. If I'm just too busy feeling sorry for myself, there is no way I can have that impact on myself or the people around me. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, wow. That's what it means to live, live, you know, that aspect of living fully, going fully for what you want, as well as just also letting go
0: Mm.
1: because things might not always happen the way we want. So you kind of need a little bit of both.
0: That's so beautiful. I love the way you frame that. And I know that, uh, you know, you mentioned the diabetes thing a couple of times. And one of the things that you're doing a good job of getting out on at least the social media space is you're talking about some of the, some of your experience specifically around being a type one diabetic athlete. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm wondering if you can kind of go into that and what you'd like to create around that uh, idea of what it means to carry, you know, this condition into an athletic performance.
1: So, um, as, as I've told you before, I don't do things fully. I always try to find the craziest things to do. So instead of just being a hiker, so I stopped dancing and I got into the mountains and and I went straight to climb Mount Shasta. I didn't like go for a hike in the park. (laughs) And then from there I climbed Rainier and like, I'm, I'm always going for like, Ooh, what's next, you know? Um, and that comes with challenges for anybody, but for a type one, um, altitude plays a role. It plays a role for all of us, but it plays a role on our sugar, right? Cause we're missing beta cells. Um, and so we have to carry, uh, an insulin pump. Most of us carry some of us, um, inject, um, and with altitude, it's really tricky because up to about 16,000 feet, um, the body, um, the body's, uh, sympathetic nervous system has not kicked in yet. And so, um the endurance aspect of hiking or climbing plays a bigger role. And so your your body is using a ton of sugar, which puts you at the risk of hypoglycemia. So you have to now change e- either the amount of insulin you're giving yourself or eat continuously, which is a, usually a good idea when you're hiking, right? But then you get to like 15 or 16,000 feet. I think it's actually 15,000. I actually did this research a few years ago, and I can't remember now if it's 15 or six, I think it's 15,000 feet. Um, Now your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and releases a ton of glucose into your bloodstream. So what happens after that is that now you actually need more insulin as opposed to less insulin, but it's not like a magic thing. So you can be on, I love to do 14ers in Colorado. So when you're at like 13 and change, and this is what I've noticed: is my sugar actually starts to go up, <clears throat> <clears throat> and um, so now, and I didn't know this before I did the research, and so I realized, oh, I need to stop um, giving myself less insulin. In fact, I need to even go more than when I when I'm at sea level. And the doing that number one trial and error, as well as um, doing the research, has taught me that, and and that's just something that a type one needs to keep in mind. Um, other than that, um, every exercise, like I, I also do a lot of biking and I, I lift weights and, and it depends on what the exercise that I'm doing, I have to change what is going on insulin-wise. Sometimes I have to think about um, if I want to do a workout, well, did I just eat? is there insulin like active, you know? And so maybe I need to wait an hour or two um, or I have to keep in mind that my sugar might drop. So eat a banana or something. So bring my sugar up a little bit before right. I start, um, you know, and then there's some workouts, like, let's say I was doing like a more of a CrossFit or a, or a high intensity interval training kind of workout that will actually raise your blood sugar. It does for everybody. Right. But you have the beta cells where you're, your insulin takes care of that extra sugar. But, you know, if I was doing a hit workout, now I have to give myself extra insulin. So it's kind of learning how to manage that as an athlete and still being able to do your sport. And it's not always perfect. So you could know how to do it. But like, I don't know, let's say I have my period. All of a sudden, those hormones are going to change everything. If I'm doing like a bike ride or if I'm doing or if like someone gets sick, then all of a sudden the um, you know, your, your hormones kind of play a role and will affect what's going on insulin wise and sugar wise. Um, so it's a little bit of a science as well as an art. So, <laughs>
0: you is, know? so is the goal to, to ultimately create some, um, some material that people can use to learn how to regulate that as they go through these activities?
1: Yeah. Um, what I'm doing on Instagram is kind of sharing things that have worked for me Um, And even some things that haven't worked for me um, and maybe what I've learned from that. And, you know, as well as just kind of sharing um, things that I think would be helpful, whether it's for on an athletic endeavor or even like something as simple as, Oh, it's summer now. And, you know, there are things that will keep your insulin cool because, you know, you can be out a whole day, you know, at the pool even. Right. And, your insulin can spoil in the heat, you know, yeah. so something as simple as that. Um, but a lot of is kind of things I've learned on a lot of the trial and error um, and some just, again, like doing the research of uh, things that I think can be helpful for type ones to to really just be more active and just encourage people to also get outdoors. Because I, I find for me outdoors is just another form of meditation, right. you know, and it's it's incredibly healing. So. Um, just encourage people to kind of get outdoors and enjoy our world and, you know, do something different.
0: That's fantastic you know? work. Yeah. My mom is uh, diabetic and she's type two, so not quite as severe, but I know that a lot of times it can be used as an excuse for her to do this or not do certain things. And really it doesn't have to be that, especially with her condition. So I appreciate you doing that work.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah no, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, maybe I'll, um, you know, eventually, like I, like I said, I, I love to you know, uh, share my story and and offer ways to motivate people. So if I can motivate more type ones that you know they're unstoppable and a lot of type ones, I did a hike once and um, there was a type one doing a hike. It wasn't a very hard hike, but she was clearly,, I think it was like our first hike ever or something. She was like having a hard time. And so I gave her some tips and stuff that I've learned. And, you know, back then I never thought, wait a second, I should really do this. Like I can really help a lot of people. It just dawned on me now, like remembering to this one girl that was struggling on the trail because she's probably never done it, and she didn't know how to manage her sugar. Right. And then She probably thought I shouldn't be here
0: mm-hmm.
1: where I should have said, oh, my God, this is great. You totally can do this. You know, you should do this every day.
0: Definitely. <laughs>
1: Yeah. That's beautiful.
0: So at this point in your life and career, what does success look like for you?
1: Oh, well, success for me is, um, having, having the time to one, have an impact on, um, helping as many people as I can, um, as well as having the space I need to, to do the things that I love and with the people that I love. So, um, one of the things that I'm doing is creating an online program to, to help um, people with pelvic floor dysfunction. And the reason that I'm doing it online is, again, so I can help more people as well as um, offer me more time so that I can help more people mm-hmm. and, uh, and do the things that you know I want to do. Um, I'm starting off my PT career doing that as well as doing some travel physical therapy. Because, you know, I love to get out there and experience the world. So. Right,
0: right. That's beautiful. So before yeah. I ask my last question, tell these guys how they can get in touch with you.
1: Yeah, so um, my websites are current, currently under construction. <laughs> um, but definitely check me out on social media. Um, I'm Esther H. Adler on social, on Instagram. And just plain Esther Adler on, on Facebook. I do have a Facebook page that... I'll post things every now and then, also my name and it's just a public uh, it's under public figure. Um, but definitely reach out to me and if uh, my story is intriguing and uh, you know anyone that would like to um, have me come and speak, then you can just reach out to me by email and I can share any anything you need that well that way as well. And it's my name, Esther Adler at estheradler.com.
0: Thank you so much for that. So the last question is always the same, and that's simply this. What does wellness mean to you?
1: Oh, I love that question. So for me, wellness is, um, I love what Brendan Bouchard says. I don't know if you know Brendan Bouchard. I do, Bouchard. yeah. Um, he goes, live, love, matter. Mm-hmm. So it's living fully, loving fully, and, and mattering, right? Actually living life so that you make an impact. And so that to me is real full wellness is really living fully and loving fully and, and living my life so that I make an impact and I matter.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us today and sharing your story. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, this was wonderful. Thanks for having me on
0: absolutely guys be sure and check out esther adler pick up her book check her out online and you uh, t1d pope folks uh, definitely look her up and uh take some of her advice i know she's doing some great work and she's going to continue to do so so look for that guys and we'll see you in the next episode take care that's going to do it for this episode of hardwater radio guys as always thank you so much for listening we appreciate you guys and if you're vibing on this content be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking sharing subscribing, and by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike, and if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com, or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you, and I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.